Welcome to The Bounce. I am Bob Lapine. I'm a pastor in Little Rock, Arkansas at Redeemer Community Church and part of the board of directors for the Great Commission Collective. GCC is behind the bounce. We're the ones who want to build strength and resilience in the lives of pastors. Our mission at the Great Commission Collective is to plant churches and strengthen leaders. And you can find out more about us at our website, gccollective.org. We've had a little break here at The Bounce. We took our summer break, and this is the beginning of what we're calling season three. And uh, we're kicking it off with what I think is a significant and important conversation for all of us as pastors. We're gonna be talking about the phenomenon in our country of de-churching, the number of folks who used to go to church who don't. It's a book came out years ago called The Rise of the Nuns that was identifying this, not the nuns as in the Catholic order, but the N-O-N-E-S, those who say when it comes to their religious affiliation, they identify as a nun. They don't have a religious affiliation. A lot of people who used to go to church don't anymore. A lot of people who were brought up going to church don't anymore. What's going on here? Well, Jim Davis and his co-author, Michael Graham have unpacked that in a new book called The Great De-Churching, where they look at the sociological research and filter it through a theological lens and say, what's happening? What should we be aware of? And as pastors, what can we learn from this? And we have the opportunity to hear from Jim here in the first episode of season three of The Bounce. Jim is a friend. We've known each other for many years. He is a pastor at a church in Orlando, Orlando Grace Church is where he pastors. He's also the host of a podcast that is produced by the Gospel Coalition called As in Heaven. And we should say that there's a link both to the podcast and to the book we're going to be talking about in our show notes. This season on Jim's podcast, they're talking about this book. So you can get an expanded view of the subject by listening to his podcast. And I'd encourage you to do that to sign up to listen. But uh, let's dive in and uh, meet Jim Davis and hear our conversation about the great de-churching. Jim, welcome. Thanks for joining us. More than a year ago that you and I were having breakfast together and you were laying out for me this project that you were involved with, this book you were working on. And I thought it's the issue that every pastor is wondering about, confronting, that we're at some level worried about, and I'm glad that the book is out now and you're you're offering the insights that you've gained from the research that you've done. The thesis of the book that, as you say, you're, you're starting to either prove or disprove is that we are currently in the middle of the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. And the research says that's true, right? It has been proven. Ryan Burge and Paul Jupe, are the sociologists we hired to do the the most comprehensive nationwide study on dechurching ever done, and and we have empirically proven that we are in the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. Which should cause all of us to look around and go, wait a sec, if the foundations are shaken, which it feels like they are, what what is going on? Is this God's judgment? Is it the end of, of an era? I mean, all of us know the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church is going to survive, but are we about to see a very different religious climate in America for forever, or at least for the foreseeable future. And do you think that what we're seeing is something that is, I don't want to say irreversible, but something that is is going to continue for an extended period of time in our country? 
There's so many layers to that question. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a complex shift, and you're right. To, we we want to start with the caveats. We know things from the Bible. We know how the story is going to end, that there would be uh, weeds in the wheat. There would be those that look like they're in the kingdom, but they are not. Um, so, you know, we know that someone's going to believe by the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit. So we have all these caveats and those who are truly Christians will remain. What does the future look like? We know that most likely children of de-churched people are unchurched people. And this is one of the crazy things we found out. A lot of the de-churched people are surprisingly orthodox. If you take your average de-churched evangelical, they their orthodox their orthodoxy scores are higher than the average churchgoer right now. So they still affirm they still affirm historic biblical orthodoxy. Very much so, especially when you get into like the what, what we call mainstream de-churched evangelical. 100% of those people are willing to return. And so it's it's very complex. We we've I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself, but so it's complex for a lot of those reasons. So what does the future hold? I don't know. I mean, if de-churching at this level cannot continue just because there won't be enough people to de-church anymore. So we wanted to understand why people are leaving, where they're going, and what it would take to bring them back. And we, again, one of the, the most surprising and hopeful pieces of our research was how many people are willing to come back. Now, there are other people who are done. They are just done. So our hope is that we can, through this research, again, it all started from our local church. But we want to get better at equipping our people to understanding the people they're ministering to. And when you say it started from your local church, you you cite Orlando, which is where you are, as as looking more like New York City now than the Bible Belt. It looked like it was going to be 25 years ago. Have you seen it on a personal level in the church that you pastor where there are people who are just saying, I'm done with this and walking away, not just from your church, but from any church? Absolutely. I mean, the main, we noticed anecdotally, the, the main type of person that we, that we encountered in Orlando was someone who used to go to church and no longer does. And then there was the Barna 2017 report that stated Orlando, the Orlando area as the sixth most de city in the world. And so we started to really pay attention to that and wonder what it looks like to be faithful to understanding our context and ministering in that context. And so we started looking at it and it really started with the podcast that we have as in heaven and it turned into a book, but we realized there's no good research out there. There, there really isn't. And so we were faced with either having a whole podcast on something anecdotal or having real research. So we took the time to commission primarily Ryan Burge, who is the author of the book, The Nuns, and really one of the top Christian sociologists uh, around right now. But you're right, Orlando has the same percentage of evangelicals as New York City and Seattle, which is shocking when you think of the 90s and Campus Crusade moving here and RTS and Wycliffe and all that. But we feel very different because our context is de-churched, not unchurched. So there are a lot of people who still carry either Christian values or real Orthodox beliefs. And we should set what is the scope of this. Over a 25-year period, there have been, according to the research, about 40 million people, 15% of American adults, who have said, I I'm not going back to church. I'm done with all of this. Is that the number? That's the number. Well, you cite actually three reasons. Before you get to the reasons they tell us, 
you cite what you think are three uh, sociological factors that have been influential in these 40 million people walking away. In the 90s is really when this started picking, when this started going in earnest. And the, and it's not just us. I mean, other people have pointed out these three factors. Um, some divide it into four and five. We chose three because you can lump some of these things together. A big one is the fall of the Soviet Union. Before uh, the, the end of the Cold War, to be American was to be Christian. And it wasn't uncommon if someone says, I'm not a Christian, the next question, well, are you a communist? I mean, it was so tightly bound together. And, you know, we, this is, it was under Eisenhower's regime when we got under God and in God, in the pledge and in God, we trust on our money. It's not a coincidence. And I'm not trying to pull away from a nation who embraces Christian doctrine, but the reality is that that we wanted it to be the Christian nation versus the evil empire. And so and let me just let me just jump in here cuz th- those people who were churched people because to be an American meant to be a churched person and to affirm God. Most of us would look and say, well that's a pretty shallow Christianity. The fact that they might face persecution, that the trials of this world would come and they would fade, that shouldn't be surprising to us. I mean, it's true that they're part of the dechurched group. There's not an evangelical footing in that uh, I, I'm an American, so therefore I'm a Christian kind of thinking. Is that right? Well, I think you're exactly right. And this is why in the 90s, uh, most of the dechurching was in mainline churches, Roman Catholic and on the political left. So this is really we're seeing people who weren't Christians, probably. And then they felt the freedom to acknowledge that for the first time. Then you have the Internet coming out and people really don't give the 90s Internet enough credit. But like in 94 is when you could find an Internet cafe and you could search views that you wouldn't have on your own. And then there's a lot that goes in the political polarization. A lot of people felt like you had to be this extreme or that extreme, the religious right, things like that. And I think in the beginning, it was more more the people who were leaving the church were not probably Christian. Now, though, you have the dechurching on the secular right is happening twice as fast as that on the secular left. And so the right is catching up in a big way. First of all, I found it fascinating that the the presence of the Internet coming was a factor in dechurching. But it made sense as I went through that in your book. If you had asked me, why are people leaving the church? My anecdotal experience would be that the religious right and what's been going on politically in our country has been the biggest factor in turning young people off from their perceived view of the relationship between the church and right-wing politics. Among evangelicals, is that the biggest reason, do you think? So when we started, so phase one was, we have three phases of research. Phase one was the, the main point. Are we or are we not in the biggest religious shift in the history of our country? And we wanted data points to understand that. When we got to phase three, that's when we really drilled into evangelicals and understanding what's going on in evangelicalism. Largely, you can, I don't know which, there's two directions I want to go with this, but first you can divide the de-churched evangelicals into what we call the casually de-churched or the de-churched casualties. Casually de-churched is the group that moved to a new town, hit the ground running, uh, never really connected to a church, probably still holds on to orthodox beliefs, thinks they'll go back one day. Of course, during COVID, this group grew exponentially. Depending on the state that you lived in, you'd stop going to church for three to 18 months. And a lot of people didn't come back. You have people who have 
kids, you know, travel sports and just can't go, you know, don't go, <laughs> which is a major factor in my age group. Um, because I, my kids are in that age range. Now I had somebody recently asked me, would you have a Saturday night service? Cause we think once a month we could make a Saturday night service. <laughs> and I, you know, I kind of politely cause they're friends, but pushed on that. Um, so that's the casually, and then you have the casualties, D church casualties, and they have a real pain point and it could be politics. It could be sexual ethic. It could be hypocrisy in the church, abuse in the church. And so we, we flesh out those, uh, those different off ramps. The one group we would say maybe taking a prolonged unhealthy break from church. The other group has, there's, there's a rock of offense, whatever it is. And they have said, I can't be a part of this anymore. And they're trying to process what that means for them and what it means for them spiritually. And some of them are saying, I'm deconstructing. Others of them are saying, uh, we're going to try a different version. We're going to we're going to go to a church that's more accepting, more whatever that uh, th that appeals to them. And, and one group that you identified that I really hadn't thought a whole lot about, because even though I'm I'm ministering in Arkansas, maybe it's just not the people I'm hanging around with, but the post church Southern Protestant right. I knew this from reading the polls that I've been reading about all of these people who are God and country, strong Republican people who haven't been to church in years. Talk about that group of post-church Southern Protestant right. Uh, it's really interesting. And we, we've seen a lot of this in our own context, some in my church, but we just in this area. You know, I think we we want to worship something. <laughs> All of us, we're going to look for something to worship. And and when if it's not Jesus, we're going to look somewhere. And I think there is there is a strong group of people who are losing control in our society. I think that creates fear and they're driven in terms of what they worship to the secular right, to a, a conservative agenda. But I think at the end of the day, for a large group of people, they're asking that to, they're seeking for that to fill a hole in the heart that it just, it won't. And we, we know the end of the story and the end of the story doesn't talk about the United States of America. Now I want, I want the U S to work. I want my kids and grandkids to grow up in a in a safe place where they can live, in Paul's words, godly, quiet lives, that the gospel will flourish. So I want those things. I'm not trying to invite distress and disruption into our, our society, but I think the Christian needs to realize our hope is not in politics. Our hope is in Jesus. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I think it does. I always, I've just been astounded at the, the people who will loudly and proudly wear the t-shirts that say pro-life, Pro God, pro this, pro that, and and then you say, "What? Tell me about the church you go to." Oh yeah, you know we we just kind of worship Jesus, and I, and I I look and go, "What God is it you're worshiping?" When when they talk like that, but there's a there's a growing segment. In fact, it's one of the interesting things when you get into political research that when they when when the newspapers talk about the evangelical support for. Donald Trump, for example, we often find the evangelical support is non-church-going evangelicals, which has not been a category for me for a long time. Well, and I can't remember, Brian Burge had some research on the way they d define evangelical includes like Muslims. I, I mean, I can't remember how, but it, it's really how they describe evangelical. And this goes into a lot of people just conflating evangelicalism and whatever evangelicalism is to, in the political realm and right-wing politics. And I think it has 
it has disenfranchised a lot of people. But you talk about deconstructing, I, you know, the deconstruction conversation is a confusing one because I would affirm many kinds of deconstruction as long as we reconstruct well. And I think some people like Colin Hanson have called it disenculturating, kind of stripping the culture, what's, what's cultural and what's actually Christianity. Yeah, Ginger, I don't know how to say her new last name. She was Ginger Duggar, now she's Ginger... Anyway, she uses the word disentangling. Yeah. And I, 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 I like that phrase because I think we all should be disentangling uh, our traditions from what the Bible teaches and, and pressure testing and challenging, you know, am I following something that's biblical or am I following something that's just a part of, of the culture I've been in for a long time? So that's healthy. But the deconstructing that goes back and says, let's see. Do I think that the Bible is right or wrong on these things? And am I going to go with, I'll tell you what was helpful for me. I I, I was exposed, this was a year ago. I, I don't think I'd ever heard of the Wesleyan quadrilateral. You may be familiar with this. But Wesley said, we know what, what truth is through four avenues, through the scriptures, through tradition, through our experience, and through our wisdom. And I he, he was saying all four of those combine to help us define truth. And what we as evangelicals would say is there's a hierarchy to that, that the scriptures are the ultimate source of truth and all those other things have to fall under the umbrella of the scriptures. What I see happening among a lot of deconstructors or de-churched people is they're saying, I'm going to put my experience and my wisdom ahead of the scriptures and tradition. And if they don't line up, I'm going with my experience or my what what I emotionally process rather than what the scriptures teach. It's not that they'll toss out the scriptures, but they're going to look for their script the scriptures to align with their own thinking rather than looking to realign their thinking according to the scriptures. Well, I think you're you're exactly right, and I, I actually have heard of the the Wesleyan quadra is it quadrilateral from you quadrilateral yeah <laughs> yeah I heard of it about, from you. you're the one who introduced <laughs> me to it, but uh, but I think I don't have good research behind what I'm about to say, but but I feel like in the 20th century there was a lot of emphasis on what's true. What's true? You have a lot of people who did great work, Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, uh, Ravi, you know, Ravi did, did his thing. And so it was, it was what's true, 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 true. And, and what wasn't as talked about is, is it good and beautiful? So I think the pendulum kind of has gone to the other extreme where people are seeking good and beautiful experientially and letting go of the truth when the gospel is true good and beautiful. Yeah. And Jesus was full of grace and truth. And we tended to lean more on the let's be full of truth and let's not worry about the grace. And and when you do that, things get out of hand. We, we didn't establish this. I think we should. What you're defining as a de-churched person is somebody who used to go to church at least once a month and now goes to church once a year or less, right? Less than once a year. Yes. Okay. So, so that's the group of people we're talking about. And the implications for this, you guys in the book, and we should say you you co-wrote this with uh, your colleague, Michael Graham, and of course, Ryan Burge helped with the, the research on this. So this is a collaborative work. But you say the implications of de-churching affect us in three ways. And and I want to go through each of these individually. First, it, ref, it, it affects us on a relational level, how we relate to one another, Explain what you mean by that. Well, in the sociological world, there I could go again a few different directions. In the sociological world, there's these old terms, belief, 
belong and behave. And and what we're seeing, especially in de-churched evangelicals, is the belief and behave is actually still there. It's the belonging that they're that they're not taking advantage of in the local body, and they're feeling it. All of the reasons, if you ask these people why they would go back to church, it, it falls in the belong area. If if I if my friends invited me, if there's a good pastor, if, if I could find a good community, that they feel that belonging, which t- shows us even in our spread out suburban, suburban world, God has given us in the local church a body that we need and we will miss and we will feel the effects in one way or another, us and our children from not being in it. But we also go the route of, of really emphasizing relational wisdom in the way that we interact with both the people in the church and outside of the church. And so flesh that out a lot as well. Dechurching, as you've experienced as a pastor, I've experienced as a pastor. In fact, you say in the book, you don't know anybody anecdotally over the age of 50 who does not have a son or a daughter who used to go to church who doesn't go to church. So the relational dynamic of dechurching is disrupting families. It's disrupting former friends who are no longer friends. I, I don't follow you on Facebook anymore. I can't talk to you anymore. Um, it is it is deepening the divide that the the political divide that exists. It's deepening the cultural divide in our in our country, isn't it? It is, and I think it hit me. There were a few points in the beginnings of this research when I realized how how important this is. And one of them, I, I gave a about a twelve minute talk on dechurching at a uh, a fundraising weekend event for a, for a largish ministry, and I opened up for a pastor that all your listeners would know. And, uh, and so I gave a little talk and then this pastor gave a great talk. And then afterwards I noticed I had a line of people waiting to talk to me and they were handing me their cards and they were, uh, offering any help they could, they could in our research. And I look over and I saw this really well-known pastor getting coffee by himself. And it just, well, this is weird. And I would, I just thought for a minute and it hit me. Every one of these people were talking about their son, their daughter, their grandchild, and and so we're we're talking about people's family, people who who we love, who have chosen to not go to church anymore, and in some case forego the faith altogether, depending on the person. So it, it, this is a real issue. And let's be honest, I have four kids. It may be an issue I walk through. I'm I'm just because I did the research doesn't mean I'm uh, secure from this happening. So um, it's something I'm passionate about for my own family, my own church, and then just all the people who experience that type of heartache. And and it is heartache. On a pastoral level, I have to remind the parents I know who are going through this that the story is not over yet and that prodigal sons do find themselves waking up at some point if if they belong to the Lord. And so we our hope is in that and we continue to pray. And I like Jim Burns. Uh, he wrote a book on uh, relating to your adult children, and the subtitle was "Keep the Welcome Mat Out and Keep Your Mouth Shut." And I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in all of that. It, there's also an impact on what this means for churches, what it means for us religiously as a nation, and it has economic impact. It has church planning impact. Talk about that. Well, let let me start. You oh, you pulled a, you opened a door that I, I do want to talk about with churches. We did see. You know, and and we experienced this anecdotally that when churches go to one or two extremes, um, either, uh, you know, we we flesh out missional and confessional in the book. But when you can go to one extreme, so you 
quoted the the Duggar docuseries earlier. I mean, so that would be one extreme, but you have lots of churches on that side that aren't as extreme, but it's kind of the, how high can we build our walls so that sin doesn't get into our community? That has negative effects and you see people revolting from that. But on the other side, you have no walls and you have, kind of, we didn't coin this term, but um, Coldplay in a TED Talk, and there's not a lot of <laughs> engaging the world. It's just trying to bring the world in. And then, you know, we make it when you can, and there's not a lot of discipleship. And you do see, we, we do see higher spikes of the next generation not continuing on those two extremes. And, and the impact for th- those of us who are pastoring the average church, and the average church is under 250 people, more than 90% of churches in America have a weekly attendance that's less than 250 people. If you start to lose two or three or four families, uh, there's economic impact, there's destabilization to what you're doing, there's discouragement for those pastors. The de-churching may change the religious landscape of our country in terms of the number of churches and the influence of churches in a community. Well, no question. And, and it goes to the American value of institutions in general. I mean, we, I've heard you speak at Family Life Weekend Remembers, and you talk about the, 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 first, you know, the first institution is the family and the next is the church. It's not surprising that in a day and age when institutions are not valued, that those two institutions would, the, the devaluing of those would devalue everything else. It destabilizes everything else. In fact, you say in the book, let me quote you here, even if you have no faith whatsoever, a case can be made that the de-churching is impacting you, your community, and your country negatively. More cultural fracturing, more privatization, erosion of institutions, loss of public trust, thinner communities. If if we become a less Christian nation, you hear me saying that in, maybe, maybe I should say uh, influenced, the influence of Christianity over our nation has been indisputable. We're, we're starting to see that diminish, and the diminishing of that will affect the kind of culture we have. Well, I mean, you can, so I lived in Europe for five years, and you can go to Europe and you can see a little window into the future in some ways. Of course, I have to give the important caveat that a lot of, like, with Europe having state religions, that, that we're not on a perfect course to follow them. But in Europe, you see a, a culture and a society that largely does not uh, value the institution of the church, and you see how it has affected all the very fabric of that society in so many different ways. We believe it is good for a a country for Christians to be in that country. So it makes sense. The fewer churches, the fewer Christians, the more any country is going to feel that, whether it's a democratic, communist, whatever, any kind of country is going to feel the effect of fewer Christians in their midst. Or let me also say just fewer, um, so fewer Christians, but fewer congregating Christians, because when we come together, we're able to cooperate and pray and do things more significantly, uh, address needs in the society, uh, feed the poor. We can do more together than we can apart. Yeah. we, We look around just at hospitals in most of our cities and see Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, whatever it is there. If there are fewer Baptist, Methodists, and Lutherans, you're not going to see as many hospitals doing 
social good in a, in a community, right? Sounds like there needs to be a Great Commission collective hospital movement starting up. <laughs> well, we'll take that up at the next board meeting. Um, the, the middle section of the book, and I don't want to get into the weeds here, but you identify really um, five categories of de-churched people, the de-churched people of color, the, the de-churched mainline Protestants and Catholics, those who are cultural Christians, but I think most of us are going to zero in on either the mainstream evangelicals who, as as you said, are de-churched only because they're taking a break, and then the ex-evangelicals who are saying, I, "I'm done with this." I'm I'm so they they have followed the the Josh Harris trajectory, and and said, "I'm I'm gone here." The people who are taking a break, there's a path back that that you identify in the book, and I want to get to that. But what about the ex-evangelical? Are they so hardened in general? Nobody's so hardened. We don't know anybody's heart. But in general, are these folks, are they really done, do you think? So let me let me take a step back and I'll answer your question. This is where, as, as a pastor, I am not a sociologist. I have learned a lot in this process. So we used uh, machine learning to examine the over 600 data points that we have from our study of over 7,000 people. And it was a machine that that came up that sorted all this this data and showed us there are these five core these five distinct groups. Um, I say five. We, we could make six, but Roman Catholic and main mainline dechurching was almost identical, so we put them in one category. Um, but the other four are are evangelical groups, and that that ex evangelical group that you're identifying, what they're telling us is that they're done. Zero percent of them want to come back. They are done. Now, can the Holy Spirit overcome that? Absolutely. But my my goal uh, is for myself and then for our church, is I want us in to be familiar enough with this data that within five questions we can know exactly who we're looking at, hmm. and we can and and there are very different paths, humanly speaking, um, based on where people how people have dechurched and which of these categories they found themselves in. So a de-churched evangelical, uh, I'm sorry, an ex-evangelical, I'm going to want to really hear their story. I'm going to be praying that God does something powerful. Uh, I want to assume very little um, and just listen really well and kind of have more of a, of a counselor approach to the way that I just want to have curiosity about their story and how, where they, how they've come to where they are. I think all of us are hoping that we will shatter some of the stereotypes that they left and were hurt because of abuses or because of, of stereotypes that cause them to to walk away and maybe friendship with somebody who is a firm, committed believer in Christ, but doesn't fit those stereotypes. We would hope that that would win them back. But honestly, the issue of gender seems to be the point where even if they look and go, okay, you're not the kind of person that I got mad at and left about, we still can't see eye to eye on gender. And if you hold to a biblical view of gender, there's no, we, we can have no fellowship with one another. Well, I think you're right. I mean, we're, we're not doing the study to put our finger in the air and figure out what America wants and modify Christianity mm -hmm. to them. But I think as a good rule of thumb, and I, I've talked to with enough pastors uh, around the nation to feel really good about what I'm about to say. If we're not getting it from both sides, something is wrong. You have your, your increasingly secular right uh, and then you have this ex-evangelical left, and there are others, other groups to our left as well. The gospel is going to, it, it threads a needle through the center. 
And, uh, and I think if, if we're not hearing critiques from our left and our right, then we, we should have concerns if we're really being faithful to what we're supposed to be faithful if, to. If we're allowing our faith to be enculturated rather than right. being our, what it should be. So the, the de-churched mainstream evangelicals, and this, is, this was the thing where when I read it in the book, in fact, you say the main takeaway is that many de-churched evangelicals simply need a friend to invite them to church and they're ready to come back. Talk about what happened in Columbia, Missouri at the crossing. Man, this is this is the craziest part of this to me and and how how much this is working. So the a lot of the money for the research came from uh, the crossing people in the crossing over in Columbia, Missouri, an EPC church there. So as a thank you, we gave them some of our initial discoveries and an executive summary. And they they saw this low hanging fruit. Uh, so Patrick Miller over there, we've worked closely with him, and and they they began to both in person and utilizing some technological resources, online resources, identify this de church mainstream evangelical and create a pathway back. And there's it, it, a digital pathway that they had. Uh, they mobilized some people to just invite their friends, and in like three or four months, there were hundreds of new people at this church. Now it's a larger church. So yeah, but it was still hundreds of people. And so we've been, I've been doing this in my own life. I'll meet somebody. And if they fall in this category, I'll ask them a few questions and invite them to church. And it's shocking how many of them are showing up and staying. I go to a class at the gym and the person who was leading our class was moving to a new community. It said, this is going to be my last time of the class. I'm moving back home. And after class, uh, I said, uh, tell me a little bit about where you're moving and, and all about it. And, and she said, well, I'm some things here. I just I kind of need a fresh start. So I'm going back home and I'm, I'm going to be here. Well, I went home and and looked online to say, are there good churches in her community? Found a couple and came back to the next class and just said to her, look, if you're if you're looking for a fresh start in life, I don't know what your church background is. I don't know if you if church has been a part of everything, but. Maybe, maybe look at this. She was so grateful and said, I'm going to do that because, you know, I used to when I was growing up this, but she was wide open to it. Now, I don't know if she ever followed up on that, but I was surprised that she didn't get annoyed or just shut down and go, uh, okay, thanks, or never mind, or I'm not interested. We just need to, if we can identify those, I used to go to church, but for some reason I didn't, but I'm not mad at the church uh, and say, it's been too long. A lot of them will say you're right. Well, and one of our takeaways, I actually don't think we put this in the book. We talked about this in the podcast and we're developing some other resources to this end. But churches that when they, well, they know their people and we generally call this membership and we know when people are moving, when pastors, elders, friends make the effort to help point them in the right direction to another church in that area. It makes such a big difference because a lot of these people are moving. They have no idea where to start. They make friends at work or in the neighborhood or whatever. That little bit of help makes so much difference. So I, I would exhort any pastors listening, when someone moves away, do exactly what you just did. And it makes a huge difference in their landing in uh, in a church at all, but also a, a healthy church. I think it's a pastoral responsibility to say Absolutely. you're moving away. Let me see what I can recommend to you. Just and, and the tool to go online and check out a website and say, there you go. That would be a church where I think, at least as far as we can tell from the web or watching a service or two, uh, I think it'd be a great place for you to land when you get to that new community. 
And then following up, you know, a month later, two months right. later, how's it going? Where yeah. those make a huge difference. Let, let me walk through your five exhortations and and I we won't drag these out, but I just want to go one by one and have you this is the summary of the book. This is your counsel to us as pastors. First of all, don't be surprised when people fall away. And you say that, but I'm still surprised and still hurt whenever that happens. So uh, unpack that a little bit. I This is the the Jesus parable of the weeds and the wheat. There, there will be those who fall away. We read this in First John as well. I, this is going to happen. There will be people who look like they're in the kingdom and we find out they are not. And it's always sad. And often mm. it's, it's a, it can it can be a very difficult process, but we can't be defeated. Yeah, we can't feel defeated in terms of the kingdom when we see something that Jesus said would happen because we know the end of the story. You just look out at your people and you don't think, I bet you're a Demas and you're going to, you know, you look and you think these are all good, godly, faithful people. So when somebody, for whatever reason, uh, just quits coming to church, it's it's hard for us. At, but you're right. Jesus said it happened to Jesus had one. Right. He, he right. had a Judas. Right. Uh, Paul had him. Don't think that you're not going to have him. Talk about how extreme responses in the church can end up hurting people. Well, we, you know, we, we talk about the two extremes again. We have uh, what I've heard, you know, called the hermeneutic of suspicion. When we're looking, you know, looking out at everybody, we go, if we want to go back to the, the parable again, you know, are, are you a weed? A weed? Are you a weed? Mm -hmm. Are you a weed? What Jesus says is it's not. I mean, we, we were given church discipline when, you know, we have processes when it becomes clear, but when it's not clear, our job is not to look at everybody and assume that they're weeds and doing so can cause harm. Uh, we were, we're called to believe the best, to be charitable. But on the other side as well, we can't ignore ignore our people when we're we know they're making destructive decisions when we know that this is not what god would want so we we build discipleship in and so we don't want to be a church that's overly controlling like some documentary that we've already talked about twice and we don't <laughs> want to develop a church where you know with you know i'll, I'll you're my friend I'll, I'll i'll just be really honest that there are churches that do what they do on an entertainment level and they the reason and i don't have doubt I'm not reason to doubt their heart, but the, what they would say is this is a big open door for unchurched and dechurched people. Right. And I don't deny that that happens, but what we forget is how big the back door is there as well. Mm -hmm. And so it actually, in some cases, that extreme can be more of a launching pad into the dechurched world than capturing them back. Part of that missional heart, as, as you said, where people are saying, we want this to be a wide open door so we get these folks in. But then what those folks often hear, to go back to what Christian Smith talked about a couple of decades ago, they hear moralistic therapeutic deism in an effort to try to warm them up to the gospel, and that doesn't stick. And so, yeah, they're out the back door six months later because that didn't scratch the the deep itch in their soul. Well, and what I think we're also seeing a little more since Christian Smith wrote that is just the entry of what I would call pop psychology into mm -hmm. gospel light pop psychology kind of. Now, my wife's a counselor. I, I mean, I have a high regard for for mental health, and we we talk a lot about that in the book. But um, just gospel light pop psych kind of the things that just don't get 
don't equip us to go out and live in this world because it is not easy to live as a Christian anywhere, in any time. Your exhortation in the book is, as pastors, we should be patient. Uh, as I said, the story's not over, and uh, we don't know what God is doing. I, I would like it to speed up a little bit, but we, <laughs> we're we not in charge of the timetable, are we? We're not. We're patient, and God is here, and He is equipping us, and He is calling us, and, and we. I, I believe this is... When all this is over, we're going to look back and say, you were right. I mean, you think about the martyrs in Revelation saying, can we go now? Can we go now? And and Jesus is holding them saying, no, the time has not yet come. And, you know, for my part, praise God, it wasn't 2000 years ago because now I get to be in the kingdom. That's right. God is patient and we're thankful for that. Shepherd the flock and equip the saints. I mean, the last two exhortations are kind of just keep doing what God has called pastors to do for 2000 years and be faithful to that and trust the Lord. Amen. I I don't want to be overly simplistic here, but there are defensive and offensive sides to pastoring. So some of it is responding uh, to crises and being there for people doing whatever we can when they need it, whether that's materialistically, physically, spiritually, emotionally, Uh, But then there's also an offensive equipping the people proactively to go into this world to be the aroma of Christ for those who have the ability to smell that. (laughs) And we we know to some people we're going to be the stench of death, and that's just the way that it is, Paul tells us. But we want people to be fruitful and, and also joyful and satisfied because it is not in this world where we're going to find those things. It is in Jesus in whom we need to be firmly rooted. And we are, if the old doctrine, Christus totus, we are an actual part of Jesus's body. And so that, which I'll never fully understand in this life, but we're baptized into the body of Christ and we kind of come full circle here. We can, we are made to work together and we can do more together in both of our internal joy uh, and our external fruit than we would ever be able to do. Anybody as a pastor who wants a, to do a deeper dive into all of this, and and all of us should want to do a deeper dive because it helps us understand the context in which we are ministering, they should get a copy of the book and get a highlighter and start going through it. And I would say go through it as a team with your staff, have conversations about this, apply it in your context and and benefit from the the massive research that you've done that I found very helpful going through on my own. And then let me also encourage folks to listen to the As in Heaven podcast, where you're going kind of piece by piece by piece through this. And again, helping us really understand the times. The men of Issachar understood the times and knew what to do. And and we need to be those kind of men as we seek to to minister in, uh, in our world today. So thank you for the book, for the research, and for Uh, the coaching that it provides for us as pastors. Well, thanks for having me on here and providing so much coaching to me over the years. I think it is so important for all of us as pastors and people who love the local church to be aware of what's going on, to have our radar up and to know how to minister effectively in this context. The gospel never changes. The truth of God's word does not change. But we need to be missionaries thinking about how we apply the gospel most effectively in the context where God has called us. And and that's why a conversation like the one we've had today with Jim Davis, I think, is so important. Again, if you'd like more information about Jim's book, The Great Dechurching, there's a link to it in our show notes, along with a link to Jim's church, Orlando Grace Church, 
and a link to his podcast, which is called As in Heaven. There's always a link to the Great Commission Collective if you'd like to find out more about who we are and what we do and whether the church you're in fits with our movement and what God is calling us to do. If you think that's the case, if that's something that you'd be interested in exploring, get in touch with us. We'd love to to see whether we can partner together in expanding the kingdom by planting churches and strengthening leaders. That's our vision, our mission at the Great Commission Collective. And as always, would you do us the favor of spreading the word about The Bounce? You can like us, you can leave comments. We love hearing from you. Pass along the word about this podcast to your friends and your fellow pastors if you think they'll benefit from these conversations. Next time on The Bounce, we're going to look at how we as pastors need to care for our own soul, our own physical, emotional, spiritual stability in order to be effective in the work that God has called us to do. Garrett Higby is going to be our guest. He's a longtime biblical counselor. He works with pastors to help refresh and revitalize all of us to keep us healthy spiritually and emotionally in the work that we're doing. And we'll talk all about that next time on The Bounce.